Welcome to the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only board gaming podcast where you don't spend an entire month in a container coming from China. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Mr. Jacob Klopfenstein. Jake, how you doing tonight? I'm doing wonderfully, man. How are you? I'm great. There's a reason I talked about that one, Jake, because I recently got something that spent like a month in a container coming from China. Well, it's also even more thematic because it's themed around China, correct? <laughs> so delightfully meta. I love it. I'm referring to the fact that my Kickstarter fulfillment for Gugong Panjun finally showed up. That's the uh, long-awaited first expansion for the game Gugong. Yeah, a mogul's, I'd say, I don't know if endorsed is the right term, but a mogul's enjoyed game. It was actually the the full-size game I played the most times in 2019. So I was very excited about this game because I like the game a lot. But one of the criticisms that's correctly and fairly leveled against it is that one of the components in it is probably not as useful as it could be. And I'm referring to Jade. It's a currency that's in there. You have to really commit a lot of energy and resources towards getting Jade. Well, and it's something that's good to dabble in. So everybody does it as well. So you're trying to get everything and everybody just kind of takes one or two pieces of jade and kind of ruins your whole day. Right. And one of my beefs with it is, is that if you don't play with the scoring tile that rewards getting jade, I feel that it's jade's a little underpowered, like it's a lot of effort and not worth the points. On the flip side, though, if you put the scoring tile in there, it's outsized important, and those that don't get Jade are going to lose automatically. So one of the things this expansion is supposed to do is level that out a little bit and make it so that that's a little more balanced and Jade's kind of a better community steward, shall we say. I'm excited to try it. Gugong's a good example of a game that I'm always down to play kind of with our group. I think it's one that always does really well with the group. It just works out well, you know, good production, some an enjoyable experience. The production is the thing I mostly wanted to talk about. I like the gameplay a lot, but, you know, the one thing I'll say about the original production is, is that the production of the game was 10 out of 10. Everything about that game was high class and beautiful. Thick cardboard, thick tiles, nice pieces, nice. Everything about this was great. And they did something in the expansion that I wish every board game expansion would do. Along with the expansion, you could get a new box that was designed to fit both the original game and the expansion in the same box, perfectly organized. Oh, and by the way, they made it even more beautiful by making it velvety with gold foil leaf on the outside. It's really beautiful. <laughs> nice. That is a definite bugbear in the gaming mogul's anger system. You know, like there's nothing that upsets me more than when you open up an expansion game and then you add it to the original box and it doesn't all fit or you get a little bit of box rise or the other converse is true of that is if you're opening up a board game for the first time and it's 99% air in that box, it just feels so stupid. You know, it sits very close on my shelf to a Feast for Odin and the Feast for Odin, the Norwegians. And there's no way in heck you're putting a single additional thing in the original Feast for Odin box. So now you got to lug around the Norwegians box along with it every time you want to play that plus the expansion. Ah, I'm a bigger fan <laughs> yeah. of having one unified box with everything in there, even if it's a slightly bigger box. Right. I have exactly traded in games or sold them or whatever because the expansion would no longer fit in them in the, in the original box. Like that is 100 percent a deal breaker for me. So, yeah, that's my exciting Kickstarter delivery of the week. I also got the Isle of Man expansion for Snowdonia, which is not the interesting part about that. This is another thing I've never seen out of an expansion. It was an expansion that included an entire deck of bug fixes for the original game. Wow. And with how many cards are in there, it can actually be an example of how it's just an entire deck. That's hilarious. Like, how, how many are we talking? Like a full? Uh, there was, I bet there was probably 25 cards uh, of fix-it cards that, get, oh that replace the originals in the original game. 
I wonder what the hit rate is that for that, like the failure rate for cards, the cards that need to be replaced of 25 of however many freaking thousand. Fair, yeah, there's like 800 cards in the original game. So even still, that's fairly low and a lot of complexity. And I'm sure a lot of stuff that like people don't play with a lot. So it was hard to beta test and make sure it was perfect. But I thought that was funny. I, this this expansion showed up and I kind of went, oh, I didn't remember getting that. <laughs> But it was just a fix. Then I opened it up and I went, oh, it's a little tiny expansion plus a lot of fix cards for the original game. (laughs) Speaking of fixes, did you end up getting the Age of Steam repair kit? I did. Yeah, I got it that a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I think I got it at the same time. I was sitting in my parents' house for a long time and my sister's wedding was around that time. So it wasn't really high of mind to go grab that. But I finally got it. Did you repair all of the cities or did you just repair the ones that actually had rules complications with them? I did, and I wish I didn't in hindsight. Mm, I, I learned from the other people's hindsight. Yeah. I'm happy about it because I just fixed Denver and the turn order on the New England one. Uh, I did. The matching is not terribly awesome on those. Well, it's just a material like design issue, right? It's just too shiny. It's too shiny. Well, and, and it's a little brighter, maybe a little different color. So yeah, the, the issue is that in the original production, they had one or two cities on one of the maps that had the wrong color of city on there, making it like rules wise wrong to play. But then on especially like, geez, the Germany map and some of the, the, the European maps, there is just rife with misspellings on there. So they issued stickers to fix the misspellings on there, too. So in hindsight, I wish I would have just repaired the rules error things and not the misspellings because, yeah, they don't match very well. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy I learned from your downside. So now by our powers combined, we have the perfect version of Age, Age of Steam because you have the trains you like to play with that I think are dumb. And I have the good boards that are not shiny and fixed spelling of the cities I'll never refer to by that. <laughs> you know, Jake, this is an awesome transition to what we played this week because that's actually the most recent game I played was Age of Steam. And I will tell you that the tabletop simulator table of this one, does it use discs? No, it does not, my friend. It uses little choo-choo trains. But what does the Vassal module use? Who cares? <laughs> have you ever played Vassal? <laughs> uh, I have a friend who played. Um, have, played Age of Steam on it. played it? I'm going to learn. This okay. aforementioned friend said they will teach me. <laughs> I, I admit that I've never played Vassal, so Neither I, I suspect there are maybe other visual shortcomings. Yeah, I mean, it's it's existed for so long that it has to have some redeeming qualities to it, right? I bet they've got the gameplay nailed down very solidly, but I don't know that it's maybe the prettiest version of it. Not that that really matters for a train game, yeah. but I'm sure it's like board 18 where it's really great, but like at the same time, it's not an enjoyable thing to do. All right, I'm pulling this up right now. It was released in 2014. Do we have a screenshot of any of this? Oh, well, Ooh, it's ugly. Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's <laughs> awful. Just like it, the original version of age of steam. It's, it's kinda, that's what, it, yeah, it's, it's actually made to look like that. How did the age of steam play go? You know, it went great. It's one of the best board gaming times I've had recently. I was playing online with some some of my oldest gaming friends that uh, we actually it's the crew I used to play Magic the Gathering with back in early 2000s. And I've played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of games with this group of friends. And they all wanted to get together and play something online. So they said, well, Mark, should we cue something up here? You know, maybe we could play uh, Great Western Trail or maybe we could play Orleans uh, or, or maybe you could suggest something. So this is a group of people that have always liked to play more competitive, very interactive games. And I was thinking about, you know, Great Western Trail is a great game, as is Orleans. But we're all kind of doing our own thing and we're not interacting that much. I thought, you know, I'm going to purposely pick something out that's going to be a little more of a hockey fight. We're going to be at each other's throats a little bit more. Hopefully it's not too mean, but 
I think this will play well. So I suggested Age of Steam. Someone watched the YouTube videos on how to play in the afternoon and thought, oh, yeah, they, that looks fun. OK, we'll we'll try it. You sure this isn't going to suck? Like somebody's not going to be sitting here bored for two hours as they're out of the game. And I had to admit that, yeah, that, that might actually happen, but probably no. But through your tenacity and just making sure people didn't make bad decisions, did it not happen? So what I did is I actually made one really key decision that was super important that I think really made sure that it went off as a great experience for everybody. We did that thing we've always talked about and never actually done. We played two rounds and then reset and started over. Oh, that's freaking phenomenal. We have been talking about that for how long? I don't know if I've done that ever in like the last year, probably. But it's such a smart thing. And it used to be so common. And I don't know what happened, but it's such a smart maneuver. Like it worked out so well. And I told them that ahead of time. I just said, hey, we're going to play this through because I guarantee you're going to make some stupid moves this first round or two that afterwards you're going to look at the fact and go, oh, well, now that I know what that word actually does, I'm not going to pick that in the future. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Somebody pricked production right away in the first round. Of course, the one thing that does nothing the first time. Well, and they they misunderstood. They thought it was that you actually got to put cubes on specific cities, not just up on the selection grid on the top. No, 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 no. Yep. And I was like, no, that doesn't do what you think it does. It It's a little more indirect than that. We played it through the first couple of rounds, reset, started over again. And not only did nobody go bankrupt, nobody got stuck out of the game and with nothing to do. It was actually a very tight fought game. In fact, I came in third. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Quite handily. What map was it? We just played Rust Belt. So, you know, with with four people, first time out, it's hard to do better than play Rust Belt. Absolutely. Especially because that's kind of the base version of the game with the least amount of extra rules or anything that's weird. Yeah, for sure. So it was an easy teach was easy to get through and especially the way the new version is laid out with the steps just right there on the board where you actually literally just walk through the steps that are up there on top of the tracking boards it was actually very easy for everybody to follow and get the rules on as well gotcha a couple of thoughts after watching new players play and uh some recommendations maybe for those of you that are newer to it and certainly those of you that have played this a lot and know better than me can probably ignore this but i noticed with new people that First off, very important. You pretty much should plan on laying track every time as a new player. Right. Because once you start getting boxed out of places and you lose that race at the end of number of track link segments and so forth, that's going to bite you in the butt. It's almost enough of a tiebreaker to be like, have you been building the whole time? Oh, you Completely. Yeah. The person and the person that literally built every single round was the one that won. Who would imagine? There it is. I know. I know. Second thing that I noticed is there was a bit of a newbie reticence to increase your expenses every round by increasing your train level. Oh, I don't know that I want to increase my train level. That's going to cost me another dollar every turn. Then at the end, they're like, well, this sucks that I'm in the 11 through 20 zone where my income is getting reduced. How do I ever bust out of that? I'm like, well, you got to deliver more than two every turn, right? You only get to deliver two things every turn, but you get, it has to be longer than a two link delivery. That's the only way you're going to power through that and get up that because what it's essentially doing is it's, it's modeling like a logarithmic curve is what it's actually doing. Absolutely. And you have to logarithmically curve each one of your turns into each other. It can't just be random, you know, Yeah, completely. Yep. Yep. So That was an interesting thing watching newbie players play again. This is a personal learning that maybe you don't need to win every auction there, Mark. (laughs) It's okay if you come in second or third on that one. So I I think I spent an inordinate amount of money in the auction just to try to, you know, win or be in first or second place, which meant that I had an extra number of loans, which meant that I didn't have enough money to build the tracks that I wanted to every time. And 
I need to pick my battles a little bit better on that one. Yeah, there's something we said of being kind of far away from everybody else. So you can kind of just let your auction not matter as much in those first couple. Because I find sure. overpaying by like a dollar or two in the beginning just can be just such a huge amount of lead around your feet. I don't know that I ever paid more than like three or four to win an auction. But the problem was, is that a lot of times that extra three or four dollars meant that I had to take a loan in order to be able to afford that. And, you know, that increased my expenses every turn. So halfway through the game, I'm making 11, 12 on income. My expenses are 10. (laughs) So I'm like, well, I made progress, but not much. And then uh, the last thing that happened that was kind of weird is I think people overlearned their lesson on production at the beginning. How production is where you restock you you restock the place where you select cubes to put out to deliver onto the board. What happened is everybody got two guns shy of that later on, and nobody did it. So as a result, by one or two rounds from the end, the board was empty. <laughs> Literally, we were starved of cubes, and nobody could deliver anything because there was nothing on the board. And when you'd roll to put out new cubes, it would just be empty column, empty column, empty column. I actually do find that pretty common, and actually on the rust belts as well. Sure. Um, I don't know if it's just because there's so many cities that it's very low odds of actually being rolled, but I, I, I would say that's pretty normal in my experiences with Rust Belt. It was so starved out that had somebody have actually done that, I think it would have made a big difference to their game if there was just a couple more cubes they could have delivered for longer rather than like, well, I guess I'll move something one because that's literally the only thing I can move right now. Gotcha. I, I wonder if that would have made a difference. Hmm. Yeah, I do wonder. You could have inadvertently helped somebody else as well, I suppose. But anyway, it was a super fun time afterwards. Everybody says, oh, I'd, I'd love to play this one again soon. That was that was great. I really had a good time. That's music to your ears, man. It was. I kind of joked that night about how I was throwing some uh, virgins into the, the Age of Steam <laughs> volcano. and <laughs> They're joining us. We're going to have our own Age of Steam con now. All the Minnesota people. They have been converted. Good time. So that was Age of Steam. And, you know, whatever we rated this at on the mogul scale before, I'm going to reclass this as a 3E. I would agree. The decisions there are so, so, so deep. It's a midway euro in terms of rules, but man, the decisions are difficult. Well, and it's the other question of how many of the maps do you consider as well, right? And with the, just the variations there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I was trying to explain that up and like this game has such a following that literally there are entire conventions for this game. And when you consider all the different maps, this is one of those system games that you could like play the rest of your life and never get sick of. Absolutely. Age of Steam, most recently published by Eagle Griffin Games, designed by Martin Wallace and and or John Borer. And or and and or <laughs> depending depending on who you ask. Depending on who you ask. Well, that's great. I've been really missing Age of Steam. It's been a game that we were playing a lot pre pre-pandemic and was getting a lot of a lot of really quality plays out of but it was that happened um i haven't played it since so yeah no you and i were recently conversing about the thought of maybe doing some live game streams this fall Mm-hmm. that might have to be on the short list oh yeah that'd be definitely on the short list i mean they have so many maps we really like playing it we're bad at it so everybody can make fun of us that's normal <laughs> i think that is half the fun of the live stream right like you're not going to learn from us by watching us play it's more like show up and heckle <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely so uh, and just question throwing it out to our listeners is that something you'd be interested in? if the gaming moguls started doing some live streams i mean Literally, this is just a group of friends sitting down and uh, clicking record as we're playing it and letting you guys watch along and heckle along is. And to clarify, it would be TTS. We are not going to be streaming. Not correct. TTS. Yes, this is not us gathered around a table with cameras we'll, around us and so we, forth. Yeah, so we'll you, never be into that. No, I am thanks. saving you from having to stare at Jake. Well, you're going to stare at us anyways. I'll have a webcam, but not, not much <laughs> well, of my webcam. 
That's true, but you can affix something over your screen over which ones of us you don't there want to look is. at. There it is. <laughs> so let us know. Give us a little feedback if that's something you'd be interested in doing, because we need to play more. And we thought that'd just be something that'd be interested, especially maybe if it's some games that uh, maybe are a little less familiar to our listeners. So keeping up with the trains, I've played a whole bunch of trains this week. Um, I'll start off with the one that's probably the neatest. I played 1862, Mark, and you may be saying, Jake, is that the one that just came out recently from GMT Games? That's what I was thinking. East Anglia. (laughs) No, this is not this one. So this is one of the... uh, You mean they don't reserve the numbers when they come out with a game with that title? It's so silly. There's like a handful of these, 1833, NE, all this different stuff. The whole number thing is stupid anyways. They should just name them different names with some say an 18xx game or something along the lines but Mm -hmm. this one is america and canada canada with a k because it is done by the german designer i believe helmet oli okay Ooh, love me some of the o design games yes so 1862 is a 18xx game only designed by helmet oli without mr lonnie orgler this is a really cool game because do you know very many 18xx games that feature the entire continent of the united states and canada for that matter Hmm. It should be a no. There's like two. Yep, that I that'd can be think no. That I'm mad. Does 18 USA have the old shooting match or is that just America? It does. It has all of it. Or 18 C to C. I think that one does as well. There's just they're they're, they're not very many well known ones. Okay. I would say there's this one. 18 West kind of feels that way. I just find the westernmost Midwest to the West Coast very, very, very underrepresented in these games. You know, we have a million games from east of Chicago all the way to like western Pennsylvania. You know, that's like where every game is. I think that it just is a statement of density, you know, in the same way that there's a lot of European games, because there's a density of railroads there where there's a lot of interesting places to go and stop and cities and so forth. Whereas, hey, look, it's going across a thousand miles of nothing. See, but I find that really neat. And comparing this to another game that I played this week, which I'll get into a bit, kind of makes these more interesting. So what you're doing in 1862 is I have a couple of different takeaways from it. I'm not going to go super deep because it's such a weird game. There was like six people who played it last last month and we were the six. What's really cool is like it has tranches in it or tranches. I don't know how French you want me to get with that. Um, a tranche <laughs> full, is... Full Frenchy, baby. Full Frenchy. Um, I, I, I'm not going to do that. But a tranche is functionally in these 18xx games is a gr- clustering of companies that need to have XYZ happen. So in, I believe, 1829, you need to fully sell out one company before you move on to the next one. That's not the case in 1862. They're arranged into three or four different tranches. And the first one is all of the companies in the first tranche that are all Eastern East Coast companies must be fully sold out before you can start the next one. Then it's every one of those has to be floated. Then the next one is all of them have to be parred. And then the final one is there's no restriction because there's no tranche after it. And this game did a really masterful job. I'm not saying masterful. It did an interesting job of balancing out the cross investing is good because the companies on the East Coast are better than the ones that are in like Oregon, for example. Mm -hmm. But it didn't do it super well. I'd like to play this one more and I don't think it's awful by any means, but it's just so close to being really, really, really good. I love the idea of continental railroads. I love the idea of building all the way across the United States, because at least where I am in my territory, where we live, we're kind of the more Western push all the way through to California kind of vibe of trains. And I just think that's a really cool train history beyond just moving all the way to Chicago from the East Coast. You know, as you were describing that, the one thing that I haven't seen another 18xx do that would actually be an interesting twist of it is the big problem about crossing the West in the the real railroad world was the fact that there are mountains there and mountains are hard to get over. And yep. so a lot of the railroads that had to push across that had to do extensive tunneling. 
And they had to run like really big, really powerful engines to get over the top of that. So it would be interesting if there were zones where like, you know, maybe you abstract that by saying that, hey, in this zone, your train only runs for half as much or something like that. Or yeah, narrow a, gauge or something along those or, lines. Or Yeah. Or you need like a certain strength of train in, or in, in order to even run this route through this zone. Like you can't run, you have to have right. at least an eight train in order to even go through this area. Yeah, I mean, that could be a hex train or something like that and just make extra hex size yeah. or something along those lines. This game did not have that, but it definitely did have the feeling of you are plowing through these mountains. They're very expensive for a full cap game. And yeah, I, th- I thought it was neat. And before I give it up, I think this is also a fun game to compare to the new upcoming release by All Aboard Games um, designed by David G.D. Hecht. 18 West. So 18 West is a very similar geographical area. It just kind of cuts off that area I was talking about from Chicago and East. And it features the same thing. One thing I think this game does really well, I'm just going to go over it really briefly. So we're not the terrain game podcast. We'll leave that to Craig. It started off with an already built full cap company, Hmm. which is really cool or incremental cap, pardon me. But they already have five shares in the market at the start of the game in SR1. And if you buy two of them, then you become the president and the company already comes with two two trains and already built track all the way from Omaha to Sacramento. Pretty cool. Interesting. The other interesting thing that this game does is it has special companies that um, get land grants to from the government and pay out as revenue for plowing through the mountains that you had aforementioned are very expensive. So there's three different types of companies in it, really small little minor companies, regular public companies, and then these, I believe, called land grant companies that just kind of try to plow their way through all the way to the West, which is kind of neat. Yeah, that sounds like fun. So that is 1862 by Helmut Ole and 18 West by David G.D. Hecht. Been playing a whole bunch of trains async and been really fun to learn all of them. I was going to say, our 18 West is yet to be released, right? It is on, it was the surprise kind of 1882 of the most upcoming wave by all aboard games. Got it. And then, uh, 1862, how available is that? Not <laughs> like at all. Our friend Phil was emailing the designer, I believe. And he said that he's been working on it. The designer has been working on it, not Phil. And that there may be some sort of thing going on here, but I didn't really ask too much. All I know is the designer has not given up on it yet, but it's a really cool game. And I just really like full East West games. You know, we can really plow through and get all the way to the West coast. Well, this is not the only game that we've played by Helmut Orgler. Yes. And that aren't available and should be. We just wrapped up a game of 1880 recently, which is China. Yeah. that was going on for a long time. Probably as long (laughs) as the Chinese empire. (laughs) (laughs) It did. One thing I will say about both the double O guys, both Helmut and Lonnie, is they definitely try to do some new stuff in their games and they throw some new ideas into games and they try to you know, emulate the history of the time and really map it out to that. They didn't pull any punches with 1880 and trying to throw new stuff into that mix, did they? God, it's so neat, but it's just so weird. <laughs> like half the time through this game it's the game i've had to reference the rules more than anything else i've played it a lot eh, not a lot i played it like four or five times so usually at this point in time i have a rough understanding of how the game works but i just can't internalize all these strange little gotcha rules you know and how, how the whole course of the plays my pacing on this is just completely ruined yeah it's a very strange one so at a high level What 1880 brings is there's one really big hiccup in the middle called the Communist Revolution that during that period of time, your stock price never changes. So it's a time there you can basically just go, "Woo, I'm going to break all the rules and just save all (laughs) my money and build up a lot of money and keep running. And it's not going to affect my stock price. On the flip side, if I run the most awesome company ever, 
it doesn't affect my stock price at all. So that's probably the weirdest thing in there. It also has a very unusual turn structure in that it keeps going around the block, taking turns until somebody doesn't buy a train for a complete time around the block. And then you do a stock round. Or if you completely run out of a train roster. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And that burned me a couple of times, too. It's like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do you mean? And there's this thing with uh, offshore investors that start running trains and accumulating money. And then when you merge with them, you get their money and their stuff. There's a lot of neat ideas in this one. But I I agree with you. I don't know that it maps super well to online play just because of the odd turn structure and the kind of flip flop at weird times back and forth between operating and stock rounds. And I just can't internalize the like just whole flow. And we, we, we played pretty quick. It wasn't super fast, wasn't super slow. I mean, it's a pretty long game just in the sheer number is, of yeah, ORs, it's, right? It's a full length 18xx game. Right. And I do remember there was some sort of conversation about it maybe coming out or something again, like That's someone the rumor. reprinting it. But I haven't heard much about that since. So if you have better news than us, shoot us a note. I'd love to hear because this is one I'm going to be pre-ordering day one because it's one that oh, I really 100%. like. But because of its weirdness and strangeness, I am no longer going to play it online. It's just too too much to manage. I can't internalize. It's too weird. And maybe I'll have to get a couple of plays in person before I play it again online. Yeah, might be my number one draft choice in a perfect world if I could pick like anything to play when we actually play trains in real life again. Right. To have a copy of 1880 and play it in real life, that oh, would be, be awesome. the greatest day ever. Completely agree. It's just such an interesting, different game compared to the other ones. Ultimately, our friend Ira wrecked us. Good Lord. <laughs> That's <his> tradition. <laughs> yeah, I played really well. Good job, Ira. I thought I, I thought I was running away with it, but I was not at all. Yeah, I was doing really well in the first half of the game, and I didn't play aggressively enough during the communist revolution and build up enough money. So uh, both you and I got suckered into buying a really, really expensive train out of our own pockets late in the game. We certainly did. Well, not optimal, but I I will probably seek out and play this again online more likely without you because I really enjoy the game and God knows when it's going to show up in real life. Yeah, who knows? I mean, that's that's just wishful thinking on saying that there's so many other games that I can play and that this one will be coming out at some point in time. Crossing our fingers. Jeez, if there's any possible way I could make this print and play, might have to do that in the meantime. Absolutely. So those are all my trains. Played a whole bunch of trains, got a couple more, but nothing. It's really super interesting. Would you play, Mark? You have a whole fun list of games. So my son is part of his get to know you back in school thing. My son uh, background is an eighth grader this year. He listed that he wants to be an astrophysicist when he grows up. Hmm. That's don't hear that a lot. No, but, you know, he's like he plays Stellaris all the time online and just absolutely loves that. So I thought, hey, uh, William, you want to play High Frontier? So we broke out High Frontier and I taught him how to play it. Oh, that's awesome. I bet you just loved it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, Dad, this is a really cool game. Holy cow. What we did is I didn't really remember how to play it because the last time we played was with you a year ago, mm-hmm. year and a half ago. And this isn't one you can just pull out and cold teach. No, sir. <laughs> we've got this one camped at a 5E on the mogul scale. And uh, we've had some people... JJ, tell us that it's not really that heavy, that it's actually deep space adventure, that it's really deep sea adventure with a bunch of extra cruft. And I can see that, but it really depends on how much stuff you put into it. So what we ended up doing is we ended up watching a YouTube video with the instructions on there just to try to get a jump start on how to play it. So I wasn't going to have to go relearn how to play it in order so that we could play it. What we ended up doing as a result of the rules is we ended up including some of the more advanced rules that we did not use, like uh, some of the stuff out of the Civilization expansion. 
holy cow, that made an enormous difference in the game. Like it was so much more interesting of a game than what we played that um, I would, I'm excited for you to try playing it that way. The biggest thing we started using is we started using support technologies. Like in the normal game, what you have to do is you have to bid and win auctions for boosters. You have to bid things for refineries and you have to get, I forget what they're called, but there are things that help you scout for materials out there. That's really the only three things that are out there. And what ends up happening is, especially in low player count, you end up getting kind of all the stuff you need. And then you just put stuff up for auction and it always sells for three because you know you can trade it back into the bank for five and it becomes not interesting. Well, on the advanced part of the card, it says that there is like a requirement for a certain type of reactor or a certain type of radiator or a certain, you know, there's there's three more cards that these cards have dependencies on. And there's different types of them, too. So. You know, if I've got a booster that maybe uh, requires an E-type reactor, not only do I have to have the booster, I have to have the reactor in order to make that thing work. So now you suddenly are looking more at, well, he's got that kind of booster and he needs that kind of reactor. (laughs) Otherwise, he doesn't get off the ground. So I'm going to bid him to the moon. I don't care if I win this thing. So I'm going to bid it at least to the point where it's underwater. Which is what people said this game is. It's like an auction game parading as a deep space game. Yes, completely. It's too simplified in just the base game. Once you put these support technologies in that introduce requirements for your basic technologies, then that suddenly unlocks the door to making it much more interesting. The other thing that makes it tougher is that when you decommission something that has a requirement, like, okay, I've now gone to a planet, I'm going to colonize it, I'm going to build a factory there. And to do that, I decommission my refinery and my rover. And those have requirements on the reactor. Now, I was super smart. And I picked a reactor that was able to power both my rover to search for stuff and my engine. But if you decommission something, you have to decommission everything that attaches to it. So now suddenly that reactor that I thought I was going to be used for my booster so I could get home, I just decommissioned to make a factory and now I can't get home. (laughs) So we had a bunch of times where we went all the way someplace, set up, discovered minerals, we're all ready to industrialize and get going. And realize that if we actually built a factory there, that we would not be able to leave the planet's surface. That's funny. So we had to go all the way home, get another, get a second reactor. How pioneering are you? You know, <laughs> should have sent out another one, sent out another, uh, another mission. They'll get set up for five years. And- well, the other problem with that is if you went with your base crew, um, everybody starts with a base crew that has like a really big, really fuel inefficient engine, but it's powerful enough. It'll get you off of any giant planet. You can't leave them behind. They're just stuck there and you you like they don't automatically go back home like you don't retain that technology. So you either have to rescue them or just not use them anymore the rest of the game if you abandon them someplace. <laughs> gotcha. That's funny. It really made a big difference in the game. It made it the auction so much more interesting. It also made the uh, extraterrestrial technologies, the stuff you manufacture off planet so much more important because now you're carrying so much extra crap that you have to get these lighter weight, more powerful engines that you build off planet in order to even make all this stuff feasible. And we really had a great time playing it. And William understood it enough that he beat me. This is a common thread here. You're a good teacher. You know, it's hard to make sure that they're doing stuff. A lot of your mental bandwidth goes towards helping them as much as it does to helping yourself. He was definitely on board figuring out. He's like, okay, I am going to go to a moon of Jupiter and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And he's over there doing the math and there's this many stops and and I'm like face down in the rule book. So when you decommission that, do you have to do? So I'm spending all the time in the rule book rather than planning my moves. I was going to say this has always been one of the games, this and leaving Earth that are perfect examples of games that you just leave set up 
in the well of a board game table. And that's exactly what we did. It was probably oh, yeah. out for about three weeks and we just kind of pecked away at it a little bit a day. That's awesome. And I would imagine if you didn't have such a voracious gaming family or could play elsewhere, that'd be great to just keep it set up for such a long time because then you and William can just kind of figure out however crazy you want to go with this game. You know, this is getting proud papa moment. There was several times that I would walk by the table and saw him standing over on it, you know, hand up, rubbing his chin, looking at it and kind of pointing at things and mathing out how he was going to get to different places. He just kept walking by it, thinking about new moves he was going to make. Which is so cool if you can just really get into a game like that, right? Oh, yeah. So really got new life. One of the reasons I wanted to pull this out is that High Frontier for All, the upgrade to that is going to be coming out pretty soon. Like it, if it isn't shipped already, it will be soon. Just in time to learn it so that we can whip out that new version over the winter and dive in deeper. Super awesome. Well, good job, William. You beat Mark, even though it's not really saying much. Hey, <laughs> it's the growing theme of the day. It's your own words, you know? I'm going to take a little bit of redemption here. I had a couple of really good games otherwise where might have unfairly beaten up on some people, but that's okay. I got a chance to play Barrage with some friends recently. Barrage, like we talked about in Games with Sharp Elbows in our last episode, is a game that you can lose badly early on and spend the entire rest of a very long game way, way, way out of it and not enjoy yourself in any way, shape or form. Am I right, Jake? I've been there before. I've done that once or twice. (laughs) Well, the good news about it is, is that I now I've played this enough times and I've taught it enough times that usually I can coach my way out of having people do that. I can tell them up front, don't do this, do this thing and walk them through the point where they might not do that. So we set up and played it and I purposely took the worst factions and I purposely made You're myself putting that in quotes because we don't know. We've just heard no. online. Rumor has it the America faction is the worst because its power is such that you only actually get a special benefit if water just flows underneath it. So you have to focus on doing that thing. And I thought, oh, that'll be fun. I'll try that. So I did a, the weirdest game of barrage I've ever done. I did not build a single dam. I did not build a base. I did not build an elevation. Nothing. All I did was I built power stations and I built every single one of my conduits. But what I did... And this was kind of mean and kind of predatory. I went and bought up all of the one and two spot conduit places on the board, making the rest of them too expensive for other people to afford, earning me big bonuses every round along the way. Yeah, you just wanted to be everywhere. You just wanted people to use your stuff. That was my original plan when I first played it. I just didn't know which spots were good. It works if you buy all the cheap ones and you do it really early on and monopolize those spaces. Right. And you have to focus on it. Like your whole turn has to be just placing conduits and spinning the wheel, doing the expensive turn the wheel three times so that you can get your guys back fast enough to do it again. Super cool. Worked out great. We actually, we called it three fifths of the way through the game, partly due to because it was running really long and also partly due to the fact that I had like 2x the number of points everybody else did. That you were dunking on everybody? A little bit, a little bit. I did have one little rule error, which gave me more points than I should have. I was actually taking that America bonus too early. You don't get that till you build your third. But I mean, honestly, we're probably talking about five extra points. It wasn't a wasn't a big swinger. Gotcha. Well, that sounds great. Anyway, Barrage still love the game. I'm of the three people I played it with. Phil loved it and wants to play it again. And he wanted to see it through the end. Uh, The other two said, I still think it's a really good game. But wow, I'm bad at it. And that kind of (laughs) sucked. Yeah, it's hard. I don't feel the same way as you. But it feels similar to the way that you kind of feel about a uh, guy project where it's just like, I know I'm going to lose. And I think yeah. I like the yeah, systems enough mm-hmm. to rescue with it. I just think our my rules error the first time I played made it just not good for me. I got to play it again. 
Looking forward to playing that one again as well. That's uh, Barrage. I, whatever we rank this on the mogul scale, calling it a 4D, I think That's is, totally is right. where, where it really fits in. It's very thinky, and ah, there are some extra rules and some stuff you got to really make sure and explain better. And there's definitely a category of games above this. You know, it's it's a no strong question. 4, but it, it's not a 5. It would be a heavy game for a medium weight gamer. Right. Absolutely. Jake, you played a lot of exit games. Holy cow, you played a lot of exit games. This is what I called in our little shared Google sheet, the exit palooza. My <laughs> wife and I are big fans of these games and it's spooky season. It's October. Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. And so my wife and I were kind of struggling with things to do. We do a lot of stuff together because we kind of have to now, but we've both been very independent people for a long, long, long time. Um, and I had my board game group and she kind of had a lot of social groups and stuff like that. But we were kind of really looking for things that we both like to do a lot. And the exit games are one of them. And we were just kind of bored. And I was just a little burned out on trying to like learn new games or trying to teach her a game that I know she's not going to like. I would rather have her some, do some, something, play a game with her that I know she's going to really love. And so we went to a game store, I don't know, a month and a half ago or something like that and bought a whole bunch of these. We bought a whole stack. And this is actually kind of a summary of a lot of them that I've played in the last while. So I bought the unlock system. So I'm talking about two different systems here. The unlock system is by Space Cowboys. They are not destructive. So the only thing that you actually have for components in the unlock system is a deck of cards. And they're usually about 60 of them, I think. But they're the big size, kind of tarot-sized cards. I don't know, tarot, I don't know how to say that one as well. Tarot, yep. Tarot, yeah, tarot-sized cards. So they're nice, they have pretty good art. I played two of them. I played the House on the Hill. Um, I also played Tonopal's Treasure, and I also played the Submarine one, which I don't have written down here because it was a while ago. It's actually, I think before we recorded the previous one, but I really enjoyed the house on the hill one. It was way more linear than the other games, but I'll do a spoiler free complaint here. These games are supposed to be puzzly, right? Mm -hmm. My main concern with them is I never know if I'm breaking the rules of the game or not. So for example, we're in a spooky haunted house. So all of the vistas are of like dark fireplaces, dark cabinets dark pulling apart wallpaper it's an abandoned house on the hill we've all been okay. there we've all played the house on the hill, right and you have to find hidden numbers in these cards that are just blended in and those are crucial for the entire game why does that exist like oh yeah you know <laughs> it i it's not like my story solving ability is related to being able to see a little hidden number 12 on there. And the other thing that's kind of frustrating is you spend most of the game searching through cards because in that 60 card deck, they're not numerically unnumbered. It's not one, two, three, all the way up to 60. It's like B, three, 79, 43, because the way that a big mechanism in this game works is you add two numbers together and that may result in a card. Um, okay. So you have to search for those things. And the other thing that's really annoying is this is from the other one we played, which was Tonneball's Treasure, which was a pirate pirate kind of themed one, is there was an emblem somewhere that kind of looked like a number formula. So it was like mm -hmm. a number with addition of another number. And that was supposed to tell us to grab a card. It just looked like a tattoo. I, I, it didn't look like anything. And it was really, really, really frustrating. And that might be a little spoilery, but whatever. It's just... I, I didn't like the interaction here with the fact that you're kind of like breaking the game at certain points just to get a card number. I just it just is so frustrating to me and it takes me completely out of it and puts me in a very bummed out mood. Well, I think you called out one of the things that I have found frustrating about some of these escape room games. Like I, I, I love them. I think they're great. But there are some of them that I look at 
And even looking at the spoiler and looking at the answer, I go, well, I can see how they got that. But like the the things are so hard to read that even knowing the answer reasonably don't know how you got there. Well, and that's not what I'm under the impression for here. I, I agree with that. I think there's some limitations to this medium. Yes, yes. Like there's certain ones in the exit ones, and I'll get to that in a bit, where it's like you just can't solve them. And then they've gotten a lot better of not trying to push the envelope on that dimension anymore. And there's usually one that just won't work every every time, just like right. you just won't get the riddle. But that's a different thing than I should have squinted harder at the fireplace and saw there was a bit of smudge that maybe looked like a number. Well, I think what you're complaining of is a different side of the same coin. Like the exit games, because of the fact they're destructible and the fact that you can kind of rip it apart and fold stuff and bend stuff, that they push the fringe on what you can do. And sometimes that makes it obscure on what you can do. The other side of it is unlocked being not destructible. There's a kind of a finite limitation on what they can get away with doing with replayable cards. And I think because they're trying to keep it interesting that way, they're pushing the fringe on what they can do with cards to make it fresh and therefore maybe pushing it too far into something that's hard to see. Yes. And that's my main complaint. We have a very well lit house too. I don't know why we had such an issue seeing these, but I don't know. And then the other two exit games I played, we played Theft on the Mississippi and Stormy Flight. And we also played the roller coaster one. The roller coaster one was really, really, really good. I would highly recommend that one. It's really linear and kind of explains the whole system well. But in Exit the Game, it comes in a very small kind of big card game box. And they're usually about $12 to $15, but they're destructive. You you can play them so you don't destroy the components, but Ann and I don't do that. We just completely destroy it and recycle it at the end of the day and save yeah. some of the little components and yeah. put it for, in something. For $12 to $15, get the full experience. Go for it. Agreed. And... I think there's some people online, I remember the Secret Cabal very much disagreed with me on which one is better. I, without a doubt, hands down thing exits a much better game. I think unlocked games are bad for the most that I've played. And I've played six of them now. I've played two of the boxes. I've heard some of the newer ones are better, but just destroy them. It's it's more of an experience. And maybe that's consumerist and more wasteful to not be able to sell the unlock games or give them to a friend after. Like I'm sending the unlock box to a friend and then they get to enjoy it with their family and pass it on to a friend after that, which is pretty cool. But the exit games just they offer such good experiences and they really push the envelope with a $12 couple of deck of cards and a pamphlet. It's, it's really cool. Really would highly recommend the exit ones. Oftentimes they'll have a few other things in there, you know, things that are, yeah, you know, punch out, a you know, little punch out or something. Punch like out that or like that some goes beads or yeah. something random or something along those lines. But yeah, I just, they keep on pushing the envelope. And I think the new set of the exit game ones have been really good. Um, the theft on the Mississippi was your detectives trying to solve who did something, which was really fun. So you got to kind of cross reference. And the Stormy Flight one was, there was an airplane going down and it was, it felt a little more pressured of time because, you know, there was like a, a, a flight issue that could happen, right. but it was really good. I I think they're great. Um, they did get stagnant for a while back there, but as someone who's played nearly all of the exit games, I'm in love with them and I keep hope they keep on releasing them. Do you remember what the name of the one that was the roller coaster was called? That's a theme that I actually think would be really interesting. The Haunted Roller Coaster. There it is. I thought it was a really good one. Really good. Really enjoyed it. It's easy. Don't get me wrong. It's an easier one, but it's it, it played really well. Ann and I really enjoyed it. Buying it right now. We play these about once or twice a year. So I will definitely take advantage of your knowledge of having played more than I'd uh, kind of handpick the ones that uh, we should definitely be playing. Yeah. And I've, I've also heard really good things about the Escape the Room games. The Werewolf one and another one are apparently some of the greatest ones, too. So I'm going to try to buy those. Maybe play them for Halloween with the wife. So more exits shall be found. Sounds great. 
Uh, the one final game we played as a family was Orleans, which my daughter actually picked out. This is one that she was demanding to play because she won it last time. Funny. Wonder why she picked that. Realized that it had been long enough since we played it that they hadn't seen all the blingy upgrades I had done to it recently. <laughs> so I have the board game geek little geek bits for it. Oh, awesome. I now have the the realistic top shelf gamer resources for it and everything is just super pimped out in my copy of the game and it was fun to pull out and play again as a family ended up scoring the best score on orleans that i have ever scored on it boy, nailing down the perfect combo so orleans is a bag builder it's one where you draw a handful of stuff out a handful of workers out every turn and you arrange them on your home board to take actions those cause you to do different events, whether it's moving around the board or establishing trading houses or going up on certain tracks and earning points. And at the end of the game, it's, the scoring is really simple. You get a combination of the goods that you've collected, which are worth different amounts, along with the a number of trading houses, plus the number of citizens you've collected, all multiplied times how much you've gone up on the education track. Really simple scoring. I managed to work up a combo where I could use scholars. They're the things that move you up on the education track. So I moved up on the education track a lot, got a lot of scholars, and I got the building that allows you to use the scholars as wild. And then I also got the building that allows you to use scholars to just get money for every trading house you have on the board. So I did nothing but get education and get trading houses and trade that in for money because money's one-to-one with victory points at the end of the game. I racked up close to 150 points. I think that's good. And my two times I've played, or one time I played this game, I think that's a good score. Well, the, the biggest score I've recorded is like 151 by our uh, good Rain Man friend, Steven. That'll do it. If you're in Steven territory, that's got to be a good score. Yeah, I was in the high 140s, I think. High 140s, you know, right around 150. And the fact that I was in the same ballpark as a Steven score <laughs> was a great day at the office. That's huge. That's awesome, man. It's always great to circle back to games we love, too, and just be fully validated that we love them. There's a little bit of worry when you circle back to games, you know? The common thread I would say with both Orleans and Barrage, that I would say both are in that camp, was that I went out with a very specific strategy in mind and executed it in a way that you kind of only get when you start getting a really deep knowledge of a game. Absolutely. And that felt really good. Completely agree. That's my favorite feeling in games. Yep. So Orleans, Reiner Stockhausen designed, published by TMG. And uh, it's a 3C. It's almost the definition of a 3C game on the mogul scale. Speaking of games that we really like to master, one of the issues with heavy games is that they are either daunting in one way or another, right? Either the rules are too much or it's just hard to really get into it and it's hard to teach. And like, let's take Roll for the Galaxy, for example. That game's great, not super heavy, but I'd put it as heavier strategy-wise. But the rules are nearly as hard to explain as the actual game. Like, Like, you can play the game in the amount of time that it takes to just explain the rules. That one's notorious for how opaque a lot of the iconography is and the rule structure is. And I know with Roll for the Galaxy 2, I swear like I'm speaking in tongues when I give the rule explanation on that one, because afterwards, everybody just gives me blank looks. Right. I That was like me back when I was a chemical engineering major. I used to just like, I couldn't always process what I was saying, but I knew it. And so I had to like, just you'd all of a sudden take a look, step back and be like, what the heck did I just say? Am I speaking in tongues? (laughs) You know? And another thing that holds back in these games is sometimes the theme. Sometimes the themes are so dense that no matter what you do, you're probably not going to be able to sell like a heavy train game to people if they're not into trains, right? Right, right, for sure. And so Mark had the awesome idea to kind of give examples of games that kind of punch above its weight. Well, and it's not just punch above their weight. They're really, ga- well, let's call them gateway games to sort of the next level of heaviness. These are right. These are games that you can get 
a level of gamer to play something that's heavier than they're used to playing and not really realize that that's what they're doing and right. introduce them that there's more out there. Right. And this isn't always just trying to pull the wool over their eyes. We don't think it's going to be like now they're no, in the game, not they're at all. trapped with it. They're going to enjoy it as well. And, and for a myriad of reasons. So. What we did is we went through and analyzed some of our favorite games that we would pull out for a crowd of gamers that are used to a specific type of game that is maybe pushing the boundaries for them, whether it's the mechanisms in it or something new and something more difficult or the rules weight or the length of the game or something about it is a way to ease them to the next level of difficulty without throwing them in the deep end of the pool so that they have a bad time and get afraid of it. Absolutely. Why don't you start us off here with uh, your first pick? We did one for light, medium, and kind of heavy. Right. But all these are pretty flexible. Yeah, these would be taking people from People that are used to playing kind of family weight games in this first class and then moving them into playing something that would be more like a midweight euro. So what I looked for there is I looked for games that had a very approachable theme or maybe non-threatening. It's maybe not something they they latch on and go, oh, that looks like a great theme. But it's a case where they don't it, the theme is not going to be a turnoff. Right. I also looked for things that had a lot of the elements and games that they were used to. And I looked for things that also introduce something new that's a hallmark of a heavier game. So with that, my selection was Isle of Sky. Isle of Sky is a game that's a tile laying game that anybody that's played Carcassonne is immediately going to recognize and be able to mostly understand what the game is about, where you're trying to lay tiles of a landmass in a pattern that scores you points exactly like Carcassonne. Here's why I think this is a gateway to the next step up is it introduces the heavier concepts of pricing and bidding. It's not bidding directly, but what you have to do is every turn you put out three tiles and you have to price them. By pricing them, that's how you actually get money and that's how you get tiles is by buying other people's priced out tiles. If there's a piece you really need, you can just straight up price it high so nobody buys it, but that means then you actually have to pay that higher price in order to keep that tile. All in all, it's a really interesting, heavier than it appears mechanism in a game that really only plays out in about an hour. Friendly theme, shorter length, interesting new concept. This is a great game that I've sort of forgotten about. And after looking at that going, dang, I want to play that again. Well, it's by our boy, Alexander Pfister, right? Is there an Alexander Pfister game we don't like? No, because we even like Oh My Goods and most people don't. So we are we are full fanboys. We haven't tried his new stuff, but that's what I was going to say. And <laughs> disclosure, he's come out with a couple new ones recently. What, Maracaibo? I think. Maybe. I don't know. You're a boring O. Not, <laughs> yeah, sure it'll be great. yeah, we, we, we haven't it. tried his most recent game, so I guess I shouldn't put that blanket statement on there. But for a family weight game and so forth, this is a definite winner that just about any group should like. So I did go a bit different than you. My whole example was I wanted to keep the rules teach down as much as possible and kind of have the game evolve in rules and in kind of strategy as you play. My issue is with that, a lot of these guys are like a light medium, a medium, medium and a heavy medium. They're all kind of medium. But the first choice that I have exemplifies my kind of ideal and ethos here when I thought about a game that kind of you can make somebody stretch a little bit more. Keyflower. Keyflower is such a simple little game. And what's amazing about it is it's just really simple from the get go. You put out a handful of different buildings and you just explain what each one of the buildings do. You explain what you get to do on your turn, whether it's bidding or outbidding. And then we're going to resolve each one of the bids and do the stuff and take them and put them on your thing. So when it's every year go, you get to now use these buildings. There's going to be a whole new set of building towers going to come up, and this is going to happen three or four times in the game. I'm sorry, I haven't played in a bit. It takes so little to just get into the game 
when you're teaching someone the first time, they're not going to get really bogged down with the strategy, but they're going to do fine. They're not going to win, but they're going to do fine. But the game's so fast, they understand the flow and understand how to play, and you immediately can reset and just play it again. I think it's going to be a way to get people who are usually not into this kind of game, but can understand using an action with some workers, bidding on something with some workers, or bidding on something to get some more workers. That's it. That's like the whole game. And then there's a little bit of tile placement as well. So really cool game. The theme leaves nothing to be desired, but what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is the Euroiest Euro on the block pretty much, right? Right. There's different colored people. There's different colored things. It's just... It's really cool. I like it a lot. I've been very enamored with this game. And I just, I think a big reason I like it is because, I mean, literally you you could set it up and teach it in like six minutes. They don't need to know everything from the get-go. And if they do, sorry, you can play a different game. Well, and admittedly, I have not played this yet. Not, you know, it's been next to me a bunch of times and it's very high on my list of games I would like to play. I perceive that this is a game that also is got a lot of replayability and depth to it. That repeated play is definitely going to benefit you and make you a better player at this one. And it's not going to quickly wear out its welcome. Agreed. It's not just some gimmick of just having it be. That's why I think I like it so much about it. If you were just play the quick round quickly, I think we played on TTS in like 30 minutes, maybe even less, 25. Um, so mm-hmm. if you're playing in person, it'll take a little longer with it just shuffling and stuff along those lines. But you're in it quickly. It's got a huge amount of replayability. Really fun, really interactive, really good game. And that's my light. I'm putting in air quotes, light medium pick. Have we ever given this a mogul scale, Jake? I don't believe we have. I don't think we have. I'd probably put it as a two or three C, depending on how used to the rules you are. Because, I mean, it's really just a game where you get a go, right? And you're just going to do a really boring turn. You, you, you either play some workers somewhere, you're either bidding on something or you're doing the action of the location. I'm going to call it a two C because that's exactly where we have Isle of Sky. So they seem like <laughs> they fit is. together well. There it is. So what's your medium pick? So my medium pick is something that honestly a lot of people would think is a heavy game because it is a heavy game, but it doesn't come off like a heavy game. And that's why I love it. I'm looking at Uva Rosenberg's La Havre. Yep, it's a heavy game. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But here's what's great about La Havre. La Havre is a game that has remarkably few rules given the depth of play. It's something that you either go to a building and do the thing on the building or you move your worker ahead and you take those pieces. One, it does the my mentality of not having all the buildings out there at the beginning, right? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of you don't have to explain the entire game. Literally, as the buildings come up at that point, you have to just explain what it's going to do. So you can start playing this game actually pretty quickly. Now, you do have to have somebody that's experienced in teaching it and can explain up front that, hey, there's some buildings coming along that do X, Y and Z, like the ports and so forth. And that's super important. They need to know those are coming and prepare for them. But as long as they do that, it's pretty quick to jump in and play with it. It's also got a theme that's, I would say, not offensive. It's very Euro-y, right? You're in a little fishing port and you're converting resources like every other mm-hmm. Uwe Rosenberg team. <laughs> and like every Uwe Rosenberg game, you are also having to feed your people at the end. You, you're responsible for feeding. And that is actually a negative. There's some stress around that. But the one thing I will say about that is it's not difficult to feed your people. What it does do, though, is if you you can feed your people, you're always going to be able to do that. But what you might not always be able to do is win the game after you have to feed your people poorly. What I like about that is even though you've just put yourself out of the game, it never feels like it. Every turn you feel like you're doing something interesting, you're always getting a bunch of stuff, and you're always moving along. Meanwhile, you're getting gutted by the guy that's really good at it, but you don't ever feel that way. 
until the end. And that's the one thing that I could see maybe this game having a bit of a warning sticker on it. You're going to lose by a lot the first time. If somebody's going to really take that personally and not like kind of internalize that and say, oh, I kind of get it now. This could be maybe a bad experience because it is a long game. There's two versions of this game. There's a shorter version in the box that has less cards in it. Right. And a longer version. I think maybe the first time out, I would recommend playing the shorter version just for, for that exact reason. Gotcha. Cool. So that's Lahav by Uwe Rosenberg. We have never, ever rated this one, Jake, either. Well, we probably have. I've been bad about putting them in. Fair enough. Does this say a 2D or a 3D? It's, I think a, it's a 3D. A D. It's a 3D. I agree with you. Okay. No, it's a 2. It's above. It's above Isle of Sky and Key Flower. Agreed. That's Lahav. That's a great medium choice. My number two is a just boring, themeless game. I didn't do the theme thing as well as you did. I didn't quite consider that because I don't <laughs> think about theme a lot. My medium choice is a game where you don't really have to even teach the whole game. You teach seven cards. Once you teach these seven cards, you play the game. That's it. It's very similar to Havre. You don't really understand how much you're getting dominated until the end of the game. But you're kind of just doing stuff, feeling really cool. Each one of your turns is really amazing. I'm speaking of the tan, boring cube fest that is Concordia. (laughs) In Concordia, you are different Mediterranean traders going around, trading goods, setting up trading houses, and um, getting more cards to try to get the most victory points. What I love so much about it in this category is it has such an interesting velocity of play. So when you first start off, I can teach these seven cards super quickly. Then I go through scoring. I indicate each one of the cards, how they score at the end of the game and how each one of those things work. After we do that, you start playing. And the first, I will say, seven turns around the table are really slow because everybody has to use all their cards. Once everybody uses their cards, each turn becomes like exponentially more fast. It's almost like you do like a NASCAR lap with like a lead car. And then after that seventh round where we all go around and play, we've played all our cards and we get all our cards back or maybe one person got them back earlier and hasn't played a card the race begins then and every single turn is faster than the previous. And it just has this great pace of play. And that's right at the time where you really want to have all the big moves happen. And then once all the cards run out, you buy all the new ones, it's it's over. That's it. But it just really has a great flow of play that I don't think a lot of other games have, especially with the teaching cycle for newer players. And it's just a great game. I think it exactly fits in this. It's not super heavy. I think we have it as a 3C but it's not super crazy, but just for how light that teaches and how everybody's still kind of in it after the first couple of turns it can really be an amazing game. Yeah. And I think that's a game that, you know, like you said, the length is very reasonable. This is one you could very easily run back and play a second time around. It's yeah, it's definitely longer than Keyflower, but it still is in that same territory of also maybe after you play all the seven cards, you'd say, why don't we score real quick? See everybody's at after everybody's bought maybe a few cards and say, why don't we score? See how everybody's doing and reset. Mm hmm. So yeah, that's Concordia. Million maps to it. Super fun. Very varied. Super fun. Well, and that is actually a benefit. You know, you go through the effort of teaching somebody that there's a bunch of replay there because you've got different maps and different things to explore. Agreed. So that's Concordia. Huge fan. My final choice, and this is transitioning people from people that are used to playing kind of medium to medium heavy games up into playing something that's unapologetically a heavy game. Tough one to follow because that, you know, that cliff gets really steep really quickly. And so you got to have something that theme wise is really understandable where the moves all make sense. They all support the theme. The game has to have great iconography and it has to have a somewhat limited rule set. The game that I ultimately chose for this one, the game that I would consider to be the lightest of the full strength, full size Lacertas. I'm talking about the Gallerist. I also think it's the best of the Lacertas. 
you're not wrong, man. This is a, everything's good about the gallerist. This is a game I absolutely love to play. And I've played with a pretty good variety of people. That's why this ultimately made my choice for this slot. This is a game where if you're a gallery owner, well, what am I going to be doing as a gallery owner? Well, I'm going to be trying to find new pieces of art and I'm going to be trying to display them. And I'm going to try to get people in to look at the art. And then I'm going to try to sell them for a profit. And I'm going to do marketing to try to get people to buy them for more money and so forth. Those are exactly the things you're doing in the game. This is a heavy game, right? There are a lot of things to explain. There's a bunch of different areas. There's a semi-confusing way of like following other people's actions where you can move and then leave a piece behind and then take that action. But it makes sense. And once you explain how it works, it flows well. The flow works. Right. I think the iconography is really good. Once you understand what the iconography means, you can very easily parse the entire board. And I think unlike a lot of Lacerda's, this one has a very reasonable length too. I mean, this is one that really doesn't outstay its welcome. And, you know, among people that know the games, I think it could be very easily played in sub two hours. Agreed. It's more systemsy than your average hero, but it doesn't feel that way. But it gets into that heavy, this action does this, does this, does this, that impacts all these other actions. Right. Very intertwined. Yeah. The reason I think this definitely qualifies is that that gateway thing is it introduces the the heavy, the, the full strength heavyweight game notion of there's a lot of rules and a lot of systems. Most really heavy games have that. And this right. is probably the easiest one to take in and assimilate for somebody that's not used to something quite that heavy. It's only one step more than what they're already used to. I love this game. It's a great one. I'd love to play it more. Yeah. And actually, this is something I'm probably going to introduce my family to somewhat soon. I think that my family could definitely take this one on and play it. Read up on those rules. Make sure you know it. And it's not super crazy. That's uh, Vita Lacerda's The Gallerist, published by Eagle Griffin Games. And Jake, you know what? This one's never been rated either. (laughs) (laughs) We did a good job of picking new stuff to talk about this time. So The Gallerist, this is a, is it a 4D or a 4E, Jake? I don't remember the strategy enough, but I think it's 4D, probably. We're calling it a 4D. But it's, it's, it's a, it's definitely a 4D. It's not, it's not a light four. It's not a game that's kind of punching a little bit above its weight or like a 3D or something like that. It's, it's, there's a lot of rules. It's exactly what you expect. Absolutely. That is my choice for the transitioning people to heavy games. And I love your choice, Jake. This one is maybe not a heavy game. It's definitely lighter than yours. That's for sure. But I still think it's a light four. I really like games where the, it's a set number of turns. Let's just say six, for example, or five or something along those lines. And the first like two, you are, you get through really quickly and you're like, is this really this long of a game? There's no way that these next three turns are going to take that long. I mean, the first two took, I don't know, 15 minutes. And then the third one takes 10 minutes by itself. And then the fourth and fifth turn take like 15, 20 minutes each. I really love that. (laughs) A game that exemplifies that, that I'm not talking about now is Imperial Settlers. It's the same thing. Sure. Yep. But yep. Yep. I think that's a great flow of play for people kind of punching above their weight because they get used to and familiar with the systems by doing kind of smaller actions in the beginning, doing some more slower, less pacey, less crucial, less interactive rounds. The game I'm speaking out here is Clans of Caledonia. Clans of Caledonia is very similar to Gaia Project and the very beloved Terra Mystica. What you're doing is you're in the Scottish Highlands and you are building different production locations that will get you different goods that you can then trade for money. You can use this money for stuff to try to get the most points for whatever reason. It's really cool because there's money in the game versus in Gaia Project or in Terra Mystica or these, there's these weird different resources. The money just makes sense, right? If you have cheese, you can sell the cheese and the market will change. Or if you want to buy cheese, 
you buy cheese and the market will change. That makes sense. It's not like I'm trading a QIC cube for something. It all makes sense. And you're bounded a lot by money. And it's very important to manage your money. So I think that kind of just makes sense. And then as I said, it does that thing where the first turn's pretty cool. You do a couple of things and your income comes and you, you do even less in the second round. Then your third round comes and you're like, oh, wow, I have a lot of stuff. And they keep on building into each other and building into each other and building into each other until the fourth and fifth round where you're just doing so much stuff each one of your go arounds. Of that trifecta, pretty clear on the fact this is my favorite of the three of those because I think it offers much the same experience in just a so much more refined, streamlined way that doesn't outstay its welcome. Like you get the same experience in 90 minutes with Clans of Caledonia. In fact, I think MogulsCon last year, we played it in an hour flat. Yeah, it's fast and it just makes sense. Things just make sense. There's a couple of weird things with a couple of the scoring rules, like how far it takes to get to certain places in your boat ability and stuff like that. But you can explain that to anybody if they're used to medium weight games when the rest of the game makes so much sense. You know? Yep. This is one, too. It's rumored to be like there's a reprint coming. Didn't you tell me that? There's a reprint and an expansion, I believe. That's what Juma El Juju Uh, has been saying, the designer uh. of the game. But. Yeah, this is on my short list of games I really want to own, and I'm sort of hanging out for that, thinking I'll buy the new one, or maybe I'll pick up the original at a bargain. I don't know. It's a great game, though. But this is one I need to own. Yeah, and I think this is a game that you could build a cornerstone of kind of a medium-heavy collection on. You know, if I were to restart my collection because my house burned down or whatever, God forbid, I feel like this would be one of the earlier ones. I love me some Guy Project. It's one of my favorite games. I might buy this one before it, though, because... It's a little bit more accessible. And there's something to be said of if you get 80% of the experience and 70% of the time, is that a transaction I'm willing to make? A lot of the times, yeah. It's also 75% of the smaller box. So maybe not 75. I think it also has some unknown upside, meaning that this isn't a game that everybody owns and everybody plays, and you're not going to run into a Clans of Caledonia shark like you are with Gaia Project or Terra Mystica. Yeah, those are big games. People play thousands and thousands of those online. So, yeah, so that's something that it's a little more random, but it's not as popular as either of those two of them. So it's something that people aren't going to have a preconceived notion of what it's like on whether they really want to play it or whether they really don't. Yeah, I think it's a great game. I wouldn't recommend a lot of medium people maybe use this game as your next stretching one. I just found it made sense to my little Euro brain. You know, it's a lot of trade ins, a lot of stuff and it all kind of builds on itself. And end scoring's pretty easy. It is a little more complicated than your average Euro, but. Nothing crazy. Excellent choice. That's Clans of Caledonia, something that we rated on the mogul scale earlier at a 3D. And I think that's exactly where it is. Yeah, I think it could. You can maybe make an argument that it's a 4D. It depends. Uh, if La Havre is a 3D, this is a 3D. Yes, I would agree with that completely. But it's a, it's a strong three. Sure. But I think that's actually one of its strengths is that it packs a lot of really meaty gameplay for a reasonable rules weight. Right. And calling both this and Gaia 4s feels wrong. Yeah. Gaia's definitely heavier than this. Cool. So there it is. Awesome. Those are our transitional games, the how to move people onto that next level of games and some of our opinions on what some great games to do that with. And, you know, if you guys have some that you would recommend, please let us know about that in one of the many ways. Tweet us. Go ahead and add us on this one. Or you can uh, chat us up on Instagram. You can also certainly visit our Board Game Geek Guild and give us some ideas on what you think are great transition games to bring people up to the next level. And with that, Jake, I think that wraps her up for the night. It was nice talking. It's nice to have a little shorter episode, too. I appreciate anybody that listened to all hour and 45 minutes of the last one. I think it was a good journey, but it was amazing. I loved it. Yeah, that was a fun episode, but certainly one of the longer ones. 
Uh, we're aiming a little more towards uh, less, but more often going forward. Less talky talky, more talky talky. Having said that, the next two are going to be a little bit plus sized, I think, in advance. It's going to be huge. So it has come to fall. And one of our favorite fall activities, Jake, is what? Not football. Doing our top 20s. <laughs> exactly. This is when we go back through and we review our top 20s and update them for the year. And I'm curious to see what a year of isolation is going to do for that. But I'm going to kick this one off. Next episode, I'm going to be revisiting my top 20 for 2020. Actually, it's my top 20 in 2020 because this is my all-time top 20. And I'm going to basically go to Pub Meeple. I'm going to load up my entire collection. I'm going to X out 18XX games and fillers. I, I You know, I think I'm probably going to include uh, a, a placeholder 18XX like you did. I did that last year. This year, I'm going to try to just do 18xx. I'm going to try to objectively compare them. I will try. We'll see. Interesting, folks. What you can expect is you can expect nine 18xx's in Jake's top 10. Just yeah, I would imagine. No, but, I, I would imagine but, there's But that's five. probably realistic, right? I would imagine there's five. All right. The 11 to 20, though, I think would be higher than five. I find it so difficult to put 1822 side by side with Lahav and say, which one's better? I might cut out some faster games, too, though. Some games that are like sub an hour that I still really like, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, how, <laughs> how, do, you, how do you compare in front of the elevators? Right. And even even a meteor filler game, like, let's take, like, Roll for the Galaxy. I might get rid of that and just have the, the, the thing saying, like, full game night games. Yeah, and I think that's probably the right way to look at it. Right. Anyway, that's what you have to look forward to next time. Well, I'm very much looking forward to it, man. That'll be awesome. Should be. For the gaming moguls, I'm Mark. And I'm Jake. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls Podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.